0: And I think the, one of the keys that makes us successful is with two owners here, making sure everything's running right. So if things start to go off track, we can correct it immediately. and can always make sure the customer has the best
1: experience possible. So what makes Michigan a great state? I'm glad you asked. My name is Cliff Dubenois and I'm on a quest to answer that exact question. After 20 years, I've returned to my native Michigan and I'm looking to reconnect with my home state. I'm talking to the people who are behind Michigan's great businesses and top destinations, the same people who work hard every day to make our lives a little bit brighter. And you, Michigander, are coming along for the ride. This is the Call of Leadership podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Call of Leadership podcast. My name is Cliff DuVenois, and today's actually a little bit of an adventure for me. Um, My guest does not know this, but it was about two years ago. I was driving up around Port Austin Way, and the GPS told me to go home taking some back roads, which I did. And all of a sudden, I ran across the farm restaurant in the middle of nowhere. And I thought to myself, this place has got to have a great story. So joining me today is one of the owners, Chris Roth, who will be uh, answering my question. So Chris, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. So first off, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up? I grew up in Sterling Heights. Okay.
0: And my family has deep roots up in the thumb area here. So I always came up on weekends and worked up here through, to work my college up here in the summers and met Pam, who's now my wife here, in 2005.
1: Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. So what actually brought you up this way?
0: Well, I, uh, getting serious with Pam and I was offered a job opportunity up in this area. I'd always wanted to work up here and live up here, but there's not a lot of full-time decent paying jobs. So I was able to move up here to get started with Pam and to start working at a different job down in Caseville. Beautiful.
1: Now, if I understand this correctly, we're, it's in the early nineties, 93, Yes. Probably we're in the middle of a recession, if memory serves. I believe you're right. And you decided to open up a restaurant. That was Pam and her ex-husband opened the farm in 93. Ah, okay. They were
0: doing catering in the summer down at Harbor Beach at the uh, Harbor Beach Resort. And they turned around and bought this business that had been closed. It was previously a restaurant that was called the Old Homestead. They closed down in 89. They bought it in 93. They ran the place together until mid 2000s, about 2005. Then they got a divorce and Pam's ex ran the restaurant for a couple years. Okay. And then her and I took it over together in 2009.
1: Now, did you have any restaurant experience? None. None. Now, what about Pam? Pam has been, this is her 30th year as a chef here at the farm.
0: Previous to that, she started out when she was cooking at 14 years old on Mackinac Island. Wow. Then she worked at a few different restaurants and then decided to go to culinary school.
1: So then I got to ask the question, and I'm sure that you and Pam have talked about this, and I, I know she's busy in the kitchen right now. You've got a party of 200 that's coming here very soon. So yes, we she do. She's busy with that. Yes. Why in the world would you ever think that a restaurant out here in the middle of nowhere would actually work? You
0: know, and that's something I know she asked herself that a lot. It was previously <laughs> a restaurant that had a local following, like I said, it it was a deep fried chicken joint, I believe, for years. Okay. And then when it closed down, so there was a local following to it. And it was kind of a field of dreams type thing. If you build it, they will come. Yes. So we're in the worst location imaginable for a restaurant. We're in the middle of nowhere. We're at least a mile from the nearest main road, four and a half miles out of town. And most weekends in the summer, we turn away just about as many people as we serve.
1: So one thing I do have to say is that, just walking around your restaurant, taking it in, there's a very heavy French influence here. Yes. It's, it's on the menu. Uh, if you've got it on your signs that are around here, which is great. And one of the things is, is I've traveled extensively throughout the countryside in France and in Italy. There, it always surprises me when I'm driving down a country road and smack dab in the middle of the field, there's a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And they're serving really good food. You know, they're not like trying to serve just like, you know, fried food or anything else like that. And they are always busy. Cause like you say, they develop a local following. So that's one of the reasons why when I stopped and looked at this place, my first thought was, did I somehow make it back to Europe <laughs> right. and see this? Kudos to you for being able to have this place and keep it running for so long. And and people do love this place. Yes. And once you talk about the European influence, that has been
0: a huge influence on Pam. Growing up, her and her parents traveled Europe did a lot of traveling every year. They would take big trips. She would take trips with her dad a couple of weeks at a time, and they would Germany, France, all different parts of Europe, Acapulco, uh, and you know Mexico. Singapore, so, Singapore. She actually won a gold medal with the culinary Olympics in Singapore a number of years back. Oh, so how cool is that? So she's got a. She's used all that travel and all that experience growing up to influence our menu and influence the sh- design and the theme of the restaurant.
1: And she's actually, if memory serves, she has actually got a lot of extensive training yes. in culinary. She has served in you know multiple presidents of multiple culinary boards.
0: Right. She's uh, worked under f- at least five different master chefs through her career. So when going to Schoolcraft College where she got her culinary degree, there's a whole boatload of master chefs there. So she's worked for them in various capacities over the years and through her training and early on in her career.
1: So now you've come along and you had no restaurant experience Correct. and you just jumped into this. Yes. And I think that was a, um,
0: a plus for the restaurant. You know, I'm a, my degrees in business administration. I'm a okay. analytical numbers person. Chefs are creative people by nature. You can't be both creative and analytical. I think that's why a lot of restaurants fail. They know how to cook, but they don't know how to run a business. And it's great because Pam and I are a great pair like that because she handles the creative side of things, and I'm the answer. I'm the question. I always I'm the one asking all the questions. Why are we doing this? Why is that? Wait a minute. And what's the cost on that? What What's that? What's the labor on that? So it works good for both. The two of us together work well together. So it uh, has been uh, great for the rebuilding of the restaurant. And we took over in 2009. There was a lot of issues with businesses surviving. Restaurants, I mean, they have oh, a hard yeah. time in, just in general surviving. So we've been able to take it to the next level, both on the menu and on
1: the business side of things. Which I do want to talk about that. And we, we quickly referenced it at the beginning of the podcast episode. So this particular restaurant, uh, Pam and her husband purchased it in the middle of a recession. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, there's the dot-com crash at the end of the 90s, which yep. sent us into a, another recession. 2008, huge recession. Some people even argue it was a, a minor depression. Right. Then we had the COVID storm. Yes. And you guys are still here. We're still here.
0: With uh, COVID, we you have to adapt. So we had Mother's Day, which is normally one of our biggest years. W- restaurant was clo- or one of our biggest holidays. We were closed, and it was all carryout. we we still served over 200 people just doing carryout, and then wonderful. Uh, we had a tent out taken up about a third of the parking lot two summers ago, when we were down to 50 percent. So we were able to offset what we lost seating-wise in here to uh, and have them outside in the tent. And fortunately, that summer the weather was almost perfect. I think we only had one day that it rained that we were open that affected the tent. So we lucked out there, and then there was some. PPP money and restaurant revitalization funds and stuff like that, that helped businesses get through too. So we took advantage of that and we were able to survive and uh, still continue to grow.
1: And with regards to, cause th- that's actually clever. I know that there were some places that were doing outdoor seating, but most of them were restaurants having like maybe two or three tables out on the sidewalk. Right. How did you guys get the idea to Drop tents in your parking lot. I mean, your parking lot is huge. It, it's huge, but in this, when we're busy, it's full.
0: It's, yes, it's hard to find a parking spot. And my employer down in Caseville, he owns two party tents for catering weddings and stuff like that too. So we took advantage of that and got one of the smaller tents and set up a forty by forty tent out here. We were able to put about twelve tables out there, which still gave us our six foot spacing between tables in here and got us down to our fifty percent seating. And allowed us to also have outside. So between the 12 and the 10 plus the three that we have out, had outside the front door, we were able to easily offset what we lost in here.
1: Now, how long did it take you working in the restaurant before you said to yourself, I'm kind of liking this? Well, I don't know if I've ever said I like it, but um, <laughs> the restaurant's kind of a
0: love-hate business. So you love it Truth. some days and you hate it some days. Truth. But I got really comfortable with it probably by the end of my third year. Okay. Learning how to run the front of the house out here. Pam runs a kitchen and I, for the most part, run the front of the house. So dealing with that. And there was uh, the first few years, especially with us taking over and getting the restaurant back on its feet and all that, there was uh, customer issues at that point that we were adapting to. And now, knock on wood, that's all pretty much behind us. We have very few customer issues. There's always a few. You can't keep everybody happy all the time. The truth. But for the most part, we're very fortunate. We, are, we put in the effort. We have got a great staff and our customers appreciate it. So very rarely do we have anything that's a really long wait. It happens once in a while, but uh, we we, keep every, we try to keep everybody happy and our reviews show that. There's very few negative reviews that we have out there
1: people love you on facebook they love you on yelp that's one of the first things i did when i saw this place 2 years ago and i drove by i took a photo of your sign out front mm-hmm. and i looked you up and i was like man people love this place what do you think it is about the farm that just makes people i mean shoot i drove 2 hours to get here today so right. what makes you what makes it that people want to come here it's good food it's good service
0: And I think one of the keys that makes us successful is with two owners here, making sure everything's running right. Pam's always in the kitchen. I'm generally always out here. So if things start to go off track, we can correct it immediately and always make sure the customer has the best experience possible.
1: Beautiful. Love that. Now, what I would like to do is you were talking earlier about, when we were talking about surviving uh, recessions, depressions, and all that other yummy stuff, you were talking about how you were taking the level service up a notch. Yes. Now, I know it's usually common with well, a lot of restaurants, not all of them, but it seems like they start to scale back and cut back. But if you're talking about upping your upping your game, why did you decide to do that? Well, we... we our, um, really good food, it's
0: simple food made with quality. Okay. Yes. So it's not real complicated, fancy names, not fancy dishes. We've got some really great servers that have been here for a number of years. They know the way that Pam and I want things done and they make sure that our new servers coming in are right up to the top standard. So beautiful. So that way in the times when I'm not out here with the, especially the new servers that are. You know, Jenny and Rachel are two senior servers. They're making sure everything's done the way we want want it to be done. And that's, I think, one of the biggest struggles with restaurant. People buying restaurants, they have no experience in it. Probably three-quarters of the restaurants and bars that are bought (laughs) are by people that have no knowledge or experience in the field.
1: That is so true.
0: And then they think, I'm just going to have someone run it for me. Yes. And I had some friends that bought a restaurant a number of years ago, and I asked them, which one of you two are going to quit your job to run it? And they said, well, we're going to have people run it for us. I said, you know what? You're never going to succeed. And they were never happy and never had good reviews, never successful because your employees care, but nobody will run your business like an owner will, no matter how hard you try. Yes. And without that extra level of attention, it's never going to be truly successful unless you're paying someone a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to really care.
1: Yeah, I know that. uh, So my adventures in cuisine uh, was inspired a lot by Anthony Bourdain Mm -hmm. and I read his, uh, um, you know, Culinary Adventures, Underbelly, the great, great book. And one of the things that he commented in there about how it's like people have like dinner parties and all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, you should buy a restaurant. And then they buy a restaurant and I laughed at that because I thought it was absurd until, you know, I started having dinner parties at my place and all of a sudden my friends were like, Cliff, you should open a restaurant. <laughs> <And> I was <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And
0: cooking for 10 people is a lot different than cooking for 200 people. Yes. It's, it's knowing how to cook and, but knowing how to execute. That's big challenge too, is really truly knowing how to execute and executing a presentation. You can't sacrifice quality and presentation so, you can meet that ticket time. I'd rather have it take two or three minutes longer in the kitchen so every plate goes out perfect. Right. In this day and age of social media, you never know where a picture of your food is going to end up.
1: That is true.
0: We recently had a couple that was in here and it was great. They just came in, no, just with reservations and they videoed everything of their experience. I saw that video. Yeah. It's that was, we had no clue that was being done until they sent it to us and said, look what we did. And that just shows you that you never really, every plate's got to come out of that kitchen being perfect because you never know where it's going to end up. And it takes one bad picture to turn off hundreds of people.
1: Yes. And it's interesting you say that because I remember when I was working in a restaurant back in the day, the owner told us, because we were talking about, I, I can't remember, there was some issue, but he was like, you know, if somebody has a bad experience, they'll go tell 20 people. Right. And I thought that was huge. These days, if somebody has a bad experience, you're talking hundreds, if not thousands, thousands. of people yes. get to see that. And especially if they do something radical and put it on your Facebook page.
0: right? Yeah. I think we're, I don't know, last when I checked, we're six or 7,000 followers on Facebook. So if they have a bad experience and tag the farm, that 7,000 people alone sees that along with all of their friends and their friends' friends. So it yep. could be 10, 15,000 people.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, Let's talk about the food. Because yes. that's the most important part of any restaurant. Right. So let's start with the basics. Right. How much of your food coming through the door is locally sourced? Locally sourced food this time of year is
0: primarily fish. Ah. Uh, we've got the Bayport Fish Company right down the road here. Yes. And we get the best way fish in the world from them. They they harvest it. And we pick it up sometimes the day they've cleaned it. So, um, And they also vacuum pack it. They, they fillet it, vacuum pack it, and freeze it. So even all through the year, when we use that fish, it's just like it was fresh caught. It's not sitting in a cooler for four or five days or in a showcase. And then right. it's, So we're getting local lake trout from them, which it's Lake Huron. It's caught up in the north end of the lake by the Native American fishers up there. Right. So that's the two proteins we have on our menu, right, that are local. As we get into the summer, in l- late summer, fall, it's going to be the fruit and vegetables we have had rhubarb, local rhubarb, local asparagus. So in the spring, we've got that. In the fall, it's uh, more of the other vegetables and fruits. It's difficult for a restaurant to do true farm-to-table with beef and poultry. Right. Because you have to have a USDA supplier that can supply you with the quantities you need when you need it. And especially up in this area, it's almost truly impossible to, impossible to be a true farm-to-table restaurant. So we take advantage of it where we can and, you know, with our fish, so we get walleye from them and we'll get, we'll do different things. So it's uh, in the fall, we may do pheasant dishes that we can get from the rooster ranch, which is, you know, they're south of here. It's a game farm. So we do a few things like that, but it's uh, almost impossible to have a true farm to hundred percent farm to table. Right. And we don't profess to be a farm-to-table experience because of that. Uh, A lot of our social media posts by our customers and stuff like that talk about a farm-to-table experience, but we don't profess to necessarily be that because it's just about impossible to truly be that. Right.
1: Especially when you want to make sure that you're getting the ingredients fresh, like we were talking about towards the end of summer, the fruit. Yes. Because that's usually the season. Right. That they happen. And people get so spoiled because they go to their local grocery store and they see strawberries in January.
0: Yeah. Right. We, um, we have, uh, we have a farmer's market up here that starts, I think Memorial Day weekend, it goes through October and yeah, in the spring they'll have a lot of fresh vegetables there, but they're peeling off the Walmart stickers and Meyer stickers as they're coming into the market. Yeah. Because it's just not local, except for maybe asparagus and, um, and rhubarb. So right. we do uh, desserts with that, and the asparagus will be on the dinner plates. But then Pam adapts through the season as we start getting different lettuces and peas and different things like that. So she does take advantage of our local farmer's market. We have uh, sweet corn, empty sweet corn, right around the corner here. And once the sweet corn's in season, they have the best sweet corn in the world. And we have that on our menu quite frequently um, from mid-August through the end of the season for them. And then squash and pumpkin, she'll do different things with local
1: vegetables like that. Certainly. So what I'm hearing now is that your menu changes throughout the season. Yes, it does. And one thing we do
0: that's probably not the most ecological-friendly thing, but we print the menu fresh daily based on what we have. Beautiful. And it's a challenge right now with supply chain issues because Pam can on Sunday order everything she wants for the week and we get three quarters of it. Right. And I just cringe when I see restaurants with pre-printed menus that they've taken marker and scratched out or yes. put stickers over it to change yes. the price. I mean, our prices are changing by the week around here. So we have to keep adapting our menu pricing and, and our menu items. So she'll put stuff on. She'll get a limited quantity because it's a new idea. We don't know how it's going to sell. So she'll have 25 of something. So then once that sells out, we'll run upstairs and reprint the menu. So customers are coming in and saying, okay, here's our menu, but we don't have this, this, and this. Yes. So it happens a little bit, but if, we, if it's near the end of the night, we might not reprint them. But in general, we'll start out fresh every day. We went to a restaurant oh, about five years ago, and it was one that, opened up south of here and everybody kept saying, boy, this place is going to give the farm the run for its money. So we met my sister and brother-in-law there for dinner on a Sunday and we had the first table seated and they said, okay, you look at the menu, there's eight things on it and we couldn't have three of them, they were out. <laughs> and that's just one of, a big pet peeve for both of us. So yes. we always make sure that the menu has everything we have, the freshest items and, uh, it changes. She might change, keep the protein, but change the way we make it because she made it the first way on Friday and said, oh, I'd like it, I'd like to do it this way instead. So might be shrimp on Friday and then Saturday shrimp is completely different presentation. Right. So it's a little bit more difficult right now because of pricing issues and supply issues than it used to be. So we're kind of limited sometimes. One of our longtime favorites on the menus are filet. And it's when we can even get the fillets right now, it's, uh, the price doesn't even make it possible to put it on. We'd have to sell the fillets for about $80. Wow. So based on, with the quality of meat that we're used
1: to using. Right. And then you consider inflation and, yes.
0: The price of the piece of meat has gone up two and a half times in the last six months.
1: Whoa. That's crazy. Right.
0: So. The, our cost on the piece of meat right now is getting close to what our selling price was a year and a half ago for it.
1: Dang! So the, the 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 question I got to ask for you is is that how do you make that judgment call if you're like for instance, let's take take your fillet. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's getting to the point where it's you know eighty dollars for one steak. Granted, not a lot of people are going to pay eighty bucks for right. a fillet because you know a year ago they were probably paying fifty. Right, like what you were talking about yeah. b- before. So how do you sit back and and make Like that judgment call, like, I mean, do you look at the prices before you even order it or how does that, how does that work?
0: Pam on Sunday mornings is doing a lot of our ordering for the week and we sit there and she'll say, wow, this has gone up to this amount. And we'll calculate what we're going to have to sell it for. Say, wow, we got to come up with an alternative.
1: Because you're the numbers guy.
0: Right. And she's, the, the steak we have on the menu right now, it's a ribeye, it's pretty reasonable priced and it's really phenomenal quality. You know, people, our two main suppliers are Gordon Foods and Cisco, Mm. and people will frown on that, but that's because the mom and pop diner in town that orders from them gets the same low quality, whatever you want day after day after day. Right. When you go to look at ground beef, for example, you've got 90 different options for ground beef. You go to look at steaks, there might be 200 different options for steaks on there. So you just have to find what you really want to do and you want to put out on your menu. Whether it's choice, select, or prime, there's different options there, and you just can't always take the cheapest one that's out there.
1: Certainly. Certainly. So you've had, I mean, you've, Pam's been with the restaurant since 93. You came on board in 2009? Correct. And now you're looking for a new chapter. Yes. You know, you're looking to find new owners for for the farm. So what kind of made that decision come around?
0: Well, what really... You know, after 30 years, Pam's just tired. We want to be tourists. We don't want to be tied down every single weekend in the summer, every holiday, every mother's day. Every, so Pam hasn't been able to celebrate a mother's day in 30 years because she's always tied up here, New Year's Eve. We're always tied in here. So we want to be able to kind of be tourists. we had had a plan. Our son went to college four years ago and our goal was to be out of the restaurant business by the time he graduated. Then something called COVID hit. So it was impossible to even try to think about selling a business during that. I mean, he had to survive before he could even think about selling it. So he was able to keep going to classes and he graduated on schedule this past spring. So now he's two years ahead of us. So we figured now's the time we'll put it on the market. And we know it's going to take a while for the right person to come along. So we figured now's the time to start because it may be a year or two before you find that right fit. Right. We we'd like to see this continue on as it's been and we want to make sure we have the right person to take over. Right. We don't want to set someone up to fail.
1: Well, definitely not. And you guys have done a lot of work with regards to building the reputation for this place, the following for this place. Your social media presence is very strong, which is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you would want to make sure that somebody coming in here is going to be able to to follow yes. what it is you've been doing. Right. And one thing,
0: speaking, you know, social media is, like we've talked about a bit earlier, that's the make or break for a business right now, especially a restaurant. We're pretty fortunate. We, it surprised us. In the spring, we were awarded a Traveler's Choice Awards by TripAdvisor. Right. Which we didn't know much about until we looked into it and found out that that was the top 10% of the restaurants worldwide based on the reviews. Yes. We'd have been happy statewide and turned out that we were... Uh, the top 10% worldwide, that was a real shock to both of us. One point is, yeah, we can add that in there if you want to. Yeah, we, can um, we limit party size on big nights. Okay. So on weekends in the summer, we won't take a group more than of 10. It's got to be like at 4.30 or 5 or after 7.30 because you get it's easy to take a group of 16 people and say, yeah, I don't, how do you turn that down? But 16 people shuts that kitchen down for the amount of time that four to five tables would. Plus, big groups like that tend to spend less money per person. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. If two, if four, a couple or four people come, they're going to get an appetizer to, you know, for the table. They're going to get a bottle of wine to split. But you get 12 or 14 people, unless one person's paying the bill, each couple doesn't want to order something like that because they feel guilty eating it. In front of other people, yes. So the average spend per customer drops on that and those groups take a lot longer to turn because you get a group of 14 people sure enough there's always one couple that's running late and they don't want to order till that couple gets there so we have an hour and 45 minute average turn on our tables but once you get over 10 people at a table that turn time goes out another half hour
1: yeah you're right and kind of like what we were talking about before when your kitchen is designed for a certain level of capacity and if you start to go above that something something somewhere's got to give
0: yep and when that 14 top hits the kitchen everything else stops
1: yes often
0: have you been to a restaurant and said man we better order before that big table does
1: oh well, so many times right so
0: by managing the reservations like that we're able to uh keep that flow going through the kitchen and not have uh, have it shut us down so that improves the experience
1: you know, what I'd like to ask you about too is we were talking before about you having tents out yeah. in the parking lot right during the COVID time, but you no longer have the tents out there. Why is that? We can't
0: handle the extra volume of people. When we had the tent out there, the tables that were out there were reduced in here. And it would be easy to oh. just say, let's uh, take the extra customers, but th- we can't handle that volume. So I'd rather take less customers and give a quality experience then be greedy, let's say, and take every seat we can. And then, um, it just increases the service time for everybody. Certainly. We've also found that we try to limit the amount of customers a server handles a night. I found that about 24 people is the sweet spot on average that for a server to handle a night. Once you get over that, their average spend per customer tends to go down. Because the person sitting with an empty glass waiting for the server to get there to reorder. I want them to have the time to get there when there's two inches left in the glass and say, would you like another? I don't want right. them sitting there looking around waiting for the server. I also want them to be at the table before the customer is ready to order. If a server gets to the table and the customer is ready to order, we've blown it because they've had too much time to look at the menu and they, we haven't been there. We haven't been responsive enough to get there. So that's something that I'm big on is giving uh getting someone to a table then five minutes after their customers are seated. certainly you miss the opportunity for the first round of drinks or an appetizer like that if they're ready to order their menu their dinners when the server gets there, likely they're not going to order an appetizer right, so it's that little things like that that help
1: make us make us successful and profitable. Sure. And from the customer standpoint, I get that. There's been a number of times where I've gone to a restaurant and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to get an appetizer, I'll get a cocktail, and then I sit and I wait 15 minutes before somebody even walks up to the table. Right. By then, I'm thinking to myself, you know what, they're pretty busy, so maybe I should just skip that and go to the entree. Right. But and I understand this and correct me if I'm wrong, restaurants usually make most of their money on appetizers and desserts
0: and alcohol. Yep. Those are the three. All well, three. Right. So if we don't, if we get there too late where they don't app, or order the appetizer or the first round of drinks and then, oh. or they're too rushed and they don't have time for dessert or the server doesn't have time to talk to them about the, the desserts we have to offer, we lose and the server loses and the customer loses. Right. So they can make more money per person waiting on less people and giving quality service. Certainly. So everybody wins that
1: way. Uh, Well, Chris, uh, so if anybody is listening to this interview and they want to come and check you out Mm -hmm. or find you on the socials or whatever, where would be the best place for them to go?
0: Start with our website, thefarmrestaurant.com, or follow us on Facebook, The Farm Restaurant. And uh, that will give you all the information you need, and you can start following us that way. And then uh, I just highly recommend don't stop in out of the blue. Make a reservation, especially in the summer. On weekends in the summer, I turn away a ton of people that show up without a reservation. And we will accept people without a reservation if we can. But sometimes people get quite upset because, well, your website doesn't say a reservation is required. Well, it's not required. I will seat you. Yes, it's recommended. I will gladly seat you if I'm able to. But the 200 people that planned
1: ahead i have to accommodate them first exactly so so for our audience we'll have those links in the show notes down below and make sure to make a reservation yes definitely yes chris it's been awesome chatting with you today i thoroughly have enjoyed uh being here for a while and i'm looking forward to trying out your dinner tonight all right thank you hey everyone before you go i want to invite you to the call of leadership community here you can get access to some really great behind the scenes goodness, like upcoming guests, interviews, but you can also get thoughts from these interviews, as well as actionable tips that you just will not find anywhere else. Plus you can stay current with what's going on, not only with this community, but with this awesome show, because there's some good stuff that's coming. Join us by going to callofleadership.com email. Once again, that's callofleadership.com email. And I'll catch you in the next episode.